Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Uh, I am joined, I think for the first time, by Roe Goldstein, our paralegal, to discuss a case uh, called Net Choice LLC um, versus Ken Paxton. And I'll give you a little background about this. Um, so I, last week, I started getting people sending me this and asking me what I thought. It's not a case NCLA has, and it's really not something we do. But since we are uh, involved with the social media companies being censored by the government. Uh, these cases, and there's one out of the 11th Circuit we'll discuss as well, uh, came across our radar, at least my radar, because it's very, very interesting. What, what happened in the Net Choice case is that Texas has passed a law that says that you can't, um, that the big social media companies, they got to be Part of the law is it's got it's got to be a large media company. They they say that they're common carriers. A common carrier is like a bus or a train, something that offers its um, that offers its services to everybody and uh, to all the public. And so this this doctrine emerged in the 19th century with the train uh, with the trains and the steamboats and things like that. But common carriers can't discriminate in certain ways. So uh, Texas and Florida passed similar laws. So it has to be a large company. Has, they've declared a common carrier and they can't uh, discriminate against customers based on viewpoint. Now, there are exceptions to that. It can't be, uh, you can't use incitement. You can't break the law. If, it, if it's uh, obscenity, anything that would be a, a breaking of the law, they can do what they want to you. And uh, so, so the Fifth Circuit, uh, in an interesting um, case, and uh, I should say here, uh, just, Judge Southwick uh, dissented, and you're going to be somewhere near him at some point? Yes, yes, in a year. Uh, okay, that means he's going to be clerking for him. So I think we can hear a lot of pro-Southwick bias in this uh, broadcast. But in any event, so what happens is, uh, so what happens is, but they do uphold it. Now, there's something you should uh, keep in mind. This is a facial challenge. Nobody had been prosecuted by the attorney general. No private person had brought a case. The, the big companies, um, uh, NetChoice and uh, Computer Communications Industry Associations, they said, hey, we're going to stop this in its tracks. It is facially unconstitutional. And this did not break along ideological lines. This, this is a matter of uh, it's cutting edge. It's cutting edge legal theory and it's cutting edge constitutional theory and a lot's going on. So. Rowie, I give it to you. What happened in Net Choice? Good, bad, different? What happened in the 11th Circuit? What's going on? Sure. Uh, well, thanks for having me. I'm honored to be here. Uh, so basically what the Fifth Circuit said was that uh, the social media companies didn't have a First Amendment right to what it called censor uh, users on its platforms. So I think it's important to, to note that this John, like you said, this case is not about you know, whether the First Amendment 
applies to social media companies. It's about whether states can, by statute, require them to not discriminate or not moderate content based on viewpoint of whatever is posted. Um, and so the, the majority in the, uh, of the Fifth Circuit panel held that um, unlike you know, newspaper publishers, um, social media companies were not engaging in quote unquote editorial discretion or editorial expression uh, when they moderate posts that are on their platforms. Instead, what it said was that they're censoring. Well, and there's an interesting thing here. I thought it was interesting that Jones and Oldham are the, are the majority here. They used, they used 230 as jujitsu against the companies. So right. section 230 is a section of the federal code that was put in to allow the internet to, it, it, for some of us are old enough to remember when there was no internet. And it, when it was first starting out, they were trying to sort of, sort of, uh, almost like with a, a little fire, protect it from the winds and, you know, allow it to grow. And, and uh, so, so 230 was so that you couldn't sue them for libel, the internet providers. And it basically said they are not publishers. They are not publishing this stuff. So the, the majority used it and says, hey, they're not publishers right. <laughs> under federal law. So, hey, how can they be editing? Right. And the majority's point on that was you can't have it both ways. You can't be protected from suits for what's posted on content con or platforms because you're not uh, publishers, but then you can also say that you have editorial discretion protected by the First Amendment uh, with regards to moderating, moderating what's on your um, platforms. Judge Southwick in dissent said that that's somewhat of a red herring because Section 230 is specifically, uh, its specific purpose is to protect uh, online internet service uh, service providers um, from liability for what's con published on their platforms for that specific purpose. In other words, you can't consider them as publishers for any harm that results from what's published on their platforms. It doesn't necessarily mean that they should be treated as common carriers for the broader purpose of whether or not they can actually moderate what's on their platforms. Right. And, and uh, that's why I said it's jujitsu. The thing that 230 was put in there as a shield and this, they're kind of using it as a sword against them here. Right. It, it's uh, it was a, it was a little losing the old force of 230 because we hear all the time in, in our business that, that Oh, we got to repeal 230, 230 is ruining the world. Right. I, I don't take any position. NCLA doesn't take any position, but I doubt that 230 is what's ruining. I, I have my, my doubts about it, right. but I do find it interesting legally how it worked out in this case. And so Judge Southwick basically said, hey, until the Supreme Court tells me differently, I'm treating this like a newspaper and you can't do this. Right. And now everyone in these cases, both the 11th Circuit and the 5th Circuit, said that there's no real good precedent on this issue. This is kind of a new area of the law because... Social media. Do you know the name of the 11th Circuit case? I saw that, that Florida just petitioned for cert. Yeah, so it's uh, Net Choice v. Um, Attorney General of Florida. So Net Choice, yes. it's the same. Okay. Yeah. And um, there are other, you know, aspects to this and other similar um, laws that are being proposed or have been signed in other states. And Net Choice is kind of the 
the association that is probably going to lead the fight for the social media companies on this issue. Um, but everyone recognized that there's really no good social media, or really good, no precedent uh, as it applies to social media. And Judge Southwick's opinion was basically like, you know, until the court specifically says how these, um, how First Amendment rights apply to social media platforms, best we can do is is analogize to newspaper uh, publishers. And so that's what I'm going to use. I was, I was just analogizing them to newspapers the other day uh, when in our case, which is the theory uh, v. Biden, but we have private plaintiffs. And I said, well, if the New York Times, if I write a letter to the New York Times and they say, Pecciani, we're not publishing your tripe. That's nothing I can do about it. But if the government tells them, don't publish Vecchioni's tripe, that's a different thing, right? So, so here though, here they're saying that the companies have gotten so big that, that they must engage with all the public or the public's going to be hurt, right? That's the point of this. Right, right. And, you know, the um, Judge Old, Olden in the majority for the Fifth Circuit does distinguish kind of the editorial process of social media companies and platforms from traditional newspapers because he so and he notes that social media platforms use algorithms and you know because there are millions and millions of posts every day on these platforms they don't go through and individually select which ones they want to keep which ones they want to remove so it is it is uh, a tough analogy to make but it's kind of the only one that's available based on precedent yeah and uh, i i have to say i also think that it's interesting, the Supreme Court, there was a stay in this, the history of this case, um, the, the, NetChoice asked for a stay of the rule and Texas wouldn't grant the stay. And, um, and then Supreme Court said, yeah, you're gonna stay the effect of the rule, 5-4, right? Right. And, but there were dissents by Alito, Thomas, and somebody else, and, and, uh, yeah, it was Gorsuch. And so, um, so what happens is uh, they reversed, and Alito said, and, and besides, we're going to take this someday. I mean, he didn't put it that clearly, but it was pretty darn clear. Right. It's coming up. Right. And Thomas has a long time said that social media companies, or he has been at least open to the idea that social media companies uh, should be treated as common carriers. And so the, um, the Florida case that was... Uh, decided by the 11th circuit uh, in the opposite direction of the fifth circuit is Florida just filed its petition for cert uh, yesterday. And because of this split now, it seems by all accounts that the Supreme court will take it up. Uh, the uh, net choice who won in the 11th circuit wants this, the Supreme court to take it up because obviously it has big implications for and, its members and the fifth circuit knew the 11th circuit had gone the other way right right so right. I, i'm sure they were uh, making it easier it's easier for the supreme court to take the case if the circuits have split so i wonder if there wasn't some of that going into it although uh it is uncharted you know it doesn't really apply i'm not on social media i mean right. it, it could be a monopoly uh, but it's like if you don't take trains what do you care so i i guess <laughs> i right. guess um we will we'll see how this develops, but I, I did think that when the common carrier theory emerged in the 19th century is when it really came about. Um, 
to my knowledge. But we'll, we'll see if it will merge again in the age of the internet. All right. All right. Thanks for being with us, Chloe. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome back to Administrative Static, and I'm joined by my colleague, Sheng Lee. And uh, Sheng, are we in a pandemic? Not according to the president. <laughs> exactly. So what, what happened was, um, I, I'll just give a, a sort of broad look at this. During the Trump administration, um, President Trump would say things uh, that uh, clashed with the administrative position. And you started seeing his statements appear in court cases. And you started seeing judges asking the representative of uh, HHS or, or justice, someone from justice, you know, well, can't we take the president as word? And I, I and other commentators were worried that this was what we call Trump law, that it was not going to apply to any other president. But it has now happened with um, President Biden many times. And you see many court cases when uh, they say, well, President Biden said this, and you're taking a different position. And the reason for this is the president runs the government, right? So how can you have a different position? So uh, at, um, in this interview, uh, uh, President Biden said the pandemic's over, no one's wearing masks, we still have things we have to do, but it's not a pandemic anymore, basically. And how it, has this affected anything, Sheng? <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say so, um, including, I think, this case out of the, the Eighth Circuit. And what is that? So, uh, so there's been, been a, a many of these cases, but in the uh, Eighth Circuit, there was just oral argument on what's called the, uh, the federal contractor vaccine mandate. Uh, and to explain that, I, I had to back up a little about a year ago, if, if everyone remembers, the president went on TV and said he's uh, uh, impatient with the rate of vaccination in America and is going to um, implement a set of plans to get more people vaccinated. Uh, and, and I think the most, the, the one that the media focused on the most is what's called the OSHA mandate, which applies to like 100 million American workers, uh, in which the president's chief of staff, speaking of this phenomenon, called it a workaround. And the Supreme Court uh, quickly, uh, quickly halted that in January of this year. Uh, what's been less reported is what's at issue in this Eighth Circuit case, which is the federal contractor vaccine mandate. And, and what this mandate says is uh, if you work for a company that has a federal a contract with the federal government, then you have to vaccinate or you have to essentially be fired from your job. Um, and, and that is, is uh, although less, less reported in the media, has uh, been the topic of uh, many litigation, including one of NCLA's own cases. Uh, most of these cases were filed by states. I, I believe NCLA is the only case uh, that I'm aware of in this area that's filed. It, it, that represents entirely private individuals. Who and what's the name of that case? Uh, case? Uh, so that case is Vanderstelt uh, v. Biden. Uh, oh. It's in the Western District of Michigan. And it is, it's, it's uh, stayed right now pending the resolution of all these state cases, which started earlier. And those state right. cases are just 
typically a state, you know, Florida v. Biden, Arizona v. Biden, Georgia v. Biden, Kentucky v. Biden. Uh, there's, there's a number of these. Uh, and, and, and the latest one uh, that's been argued is, uh, is the, it's out of uh, it's Missouri v. Biden uh, in the Eighth Circuit. And, that, and they just had oral argument just uh, uh, yesterday. And, and here's how, and so our case was stayed and it just continued to get stayed because they're in the district court and they say, ah, let's see what the appellate courts do before I, before I put my neck on the, on the chopping block for whatever my view is, I guess, is how the district courts are looking at it. But um, Cheng, so how did this presidential comment come up in the oral argument? Well, so a few a few days ago or a few weeks ago, the president in a, in a 60 minute interview said uh, the pandemic is over. <laughs> and one of the judges, uh, it was Judge Smith, uh, who's on the panel, uh, asked the government, wait, wait a second. The president just said the pandemic's over. So why is this vaccine mandate, which was justified as a, you know, as a pandemic emergency measure still in place? And uh, and the government didn't have a particularly good argument for why that why that is the case, I think. Uh, oops. And so, uh, well, but the, the, I think I think the more in, you know important part of these cases is uh, less to do with whether you know what's what's within the government's um, emergency authority and more to do with uh, the government's authority under under what's called the uh, Procurement Act, which is the act that the president invoked to uh, impose this uh, vaccine contractor vaccine mandate. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about that in one second, Ching, but I, I think the listeners need to know how, why this is. It's not just, if you have a federal contract, uh, the, what this proclamation is doing is whether you work on the federal contract or not, you have to get vaccinated. So it's, and, oh. and, and your subcontractors, right? Oh yeah, it's incredibly broad. The breadth of this thing is, is just stunning. Uh, the, the Department of Labor estimates about one in five American workers are affected by this, which comes out to be about 30 to 35 million. And most of those don't work on a federal contract. Uh, you know, for example, one of our clients in the Michigan case works for a news company as an IT person. It just so happens this news company has some, uh, some contracts with a U.S. intelligence agency you know, doing open source analysis. And because of that contract, everyone who works for this news company in every aspect is, is somehow covered uh, under the vaccine mandate. Even, even if they remotely? Don't, you know, do anything. Even the sorry? Even if they work remotely? Oh, yeah. The, the, our guy work remotely. And that's, that's the other thing. Um, remote workers are covered. Workers who work entirely outside are covered. Workers who are naturally immune are covered. And, and it's funny, the, the, on the natural immunity uh, issue, uh, in an FAQ on the government's website explaining why the frequently asked immunity. question uh, is what that means. Yeah, sorry, the frequently asked questions. Why natural immunity workers are, are, are forced to vaccinate? Uh, it, there's a link to a CDC, uh, CDC FAQ that no longer exists because the CDC has changed its position on this. Just ah. in the last few months, the CDC has, uh, you know, recognizes that natural immunity confers broad protections uh, and it has changed its, its recommendations. So this this, you know, this justification no longer, it's just not there anymore. And it, but, but the links, it's still there. Well, we update our briefs, right? When we have a link in it, now we can have links. Yeah, that's, that's we true. We always say, last reviewed on such a, day, such a date. I think the government has, is going to have to put those in some briefs going forward. So 
tell us about the Procurement Act. Why doesn't, why, you know, he, he, the president gets to uh, procure, uh, run all the procurement um, operations of the federal government that needs a lot of stuff. Why, why doesn't this uh, Procurement Act uh, allow him to do that? So the Procurement Act is something that's put, uh, uh, Congress enacted in right after the Second World War. And it says the president may prescribe policies and directives uh, that he, you know, that he considers necessary to carry out federal procurement. That's all well and good, um, but, but that's been interpreted by courts to mean, well, he can organize the government's internal policies, right? He doesn't get to dictate to the government's, uh, the business of the government contract, what they can do. Uh, the, the government's counter argument to that is that they point to the purpose statement of the Procurement Act and says, well, which says the purpose of this act is to provide the federal government with an economical and efficient system for procurement. Uh, and, and then they say, well, if the president considers something economical and efficient, he gets to impose it, whatever that is. Uh, and here he's taking the justification as well. Uh, if all work contractor workers were vaccinated, uh, they're, they're, they would be healthier and, uh, and there'd be fewer uh, absenteeism and, and there'd be savings to the government because of that. Well, I think that argument runs a few, into a few problems. Um, some courts, including the 11th Circuit, have said, well, let's start, this is just a purpose statement. And we typically don't uh, read too much into the purpose. The purpose statement is not, it's different from the operative text in that it doesn't grant any authorities. Um, but even, even if, um, you know, it does, it, you know, the government's reading, it seems to be really broad. And that's, that's one thing in oral argument that uh, Judge Gratz um, said in, in the Eighth Circuit. Uh, he basically asked the government, well, you know, does the president get to do anything that he considers economic and efficient? What if he thinks, you know, certainly, a health, if, if any kind of you know, healthier you know, set of employees is more efficient, can the president get everyone to, in, in contractor companies to exercise, eat a particular diet? And, stop and why, smoking. You know, why? Stop smoking. What if what if you have a, a heavy smoking uh, uh, procurement uh, group? Yeah, that... stop stop smoking, stop drinking. You know, all these things. Can he dictate these lifestyle choices? And it really doesn't necessarily end with um, necessarily end with. Uh, uh, you know, employee lifestyles, if it's anything that's economically efficient, can the government go to a company and say, hey, if you want to do business with the government, you have to adopt a certain corporate structure that we think is better or, you know, or, or you know, it's, it's more efficient. Or maybe we think, look, we think um, the cheapest way of producing power is through dirty coal. And, you know, you're going to save government money if you, you know, all your factories are run on coal power. So can, can the government go and force uh, – uh, force uh, all companies to adopt coal power, and, and you know we think certainly not. Uh, we can't read the the, uh, the procurement act that broadly. And courts, uh, I mean, this is not the Eighth Circuit is not the first court to, to look at this. And other courts, like the Fifth Circuit, have said, uh, well, for, for that reason and because of the historical context, we're going to interpret this to mean that the the president can provide an economic and efficient system within the federal government. He can organize agencies within the federal government to increase efficiency of contracting with companies outside of the federal government. And, and I think that makes a lot of sense, too, because, uh, th again, this act was, was uh, enacted after World War II to address inefficiencies in the federal government uh, in procurement during the war and post-war years, uh, and with the presumption of being that the private companies in the, in the free market tend to do things efficiently and the lumber and government tend to do things inefficiently. So what we need to do is make the government m more uh, efficient, adopting some of these 
private, you know, pri uh, or, or private company practices or leveraging the efficiencies of the free market, and 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 being, you know, allowing the president to force the government's views on efficiency on what's presumed to be the efficient free market seems to undermine that, you know, that underlying uh, presumption behind the act. Yeah, and I I do think that the the um, government's insistence on all this uh, and, and pushing this, even though they've lost in a bunch, I mean, on, at the injunction stage, certainly, they've lost in a lot of different circuits. This is not one circuit that's out there. Uh, they don't like the nationwide injunctions sometimes, but it, why, you know, and the CDC has changed its, its view of natural immunity. At, at what point do they just pull in their horns? So we'll see, we'll see. The president thinks the pandemic's over. The CDC's recognizing natural immunity. Uh, why is the government making employers do this? Because it's so fun to take questions like that. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Thank you John.